Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to the Our World Cup series here on the 90 Min Podcast, where we look back on some of the most recent World Cup tournaments. Uh, we share our memories and thoughts um, from such historic events. And I'm delighted to say that alongside me to look back at the 2006 World Cup are, first of all, the man behind the series, Jack Gallagher. Uh, welcome. How are you? I'm all good. How are you? I'm good, mate. I'm good. Arsenal, at the time of recording, are five points clear at the top of the league. There's nothing to be unhappy about. World Cup is around the corner. Happy days. Uh, delighted. Also joining us, uh, Mr. Toby Cudworth, uh, head of UK content. How are you? All good, mate. All good. I'm not enjoying club football quite as much as you are at the moment, so we won't we won't drill on that too much if that's all right. Yeah, that's all right with me. I'll let you off. I've been there. I know what it feels like. Well, actually, no, we haven't been as low as that, but we've been <laughs> in a difficult time. Uh, so I know where you're coming from. Let's uh, let's kick off then our recap of the 2006 World Cup. Let's have a look back at how things looked in the general world at the time. George Bush was the US president and Tony Blair was the UK prime minister. The Nintendo Wii was released. Man Eater by Nelly Furtado was the number one single in the UK. And Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift was the number one film. Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. I'm on the fence about that film, uh, Toby. Any thoughts on it? I'm on the fence about the franchise, to be honest. I've <laughs> never really bought into the whole Fast and Furious concept. I think I've only watched two, maybe, of the films. Um, so Tokyo Drift, all I remember is the video game. And everybody going mad for that rather than the actual film itself. So, yeah, I prefer that far more. Drifting cars around corners and crashing them into barriers and watching Vin Diesel and The Rock uh, pretend that they're driving at 100 million miles an hour. Jack, are you a Fast and Furious man? No, but I think this is my favourite one. It's such a like ITV4 half 11 on a Saturday night <laughs> coming on after a night out film. So it is. And it's just... It is the absolute perfect film to come on from a night out and watch because it is just absolutely mental. But absolutely. in a good way, in a good way. Great. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm on the fence about the Fast and Furious films as well. Um, there's a few of them that are decent, I think. But then as they've gone on, they've become pro uh, you know, progressively more and more ridiculous in terms of what happens in them. So, yeah, I've, I've turned off, uh, I've got to say. In terms of the football landscape, uh, Arsenal lost in the Champions League final to Barcelona. Painful memories for me personally, with Giuliano Belletti scoring the winner and Sevilla beat Middlesbrough 4-0 in the UEFA Cup final. Middlesbrough in a UEFA Cup final. I say, you know, this was a while ago. Uh, in terms of the domestic competitions, Chelsea won the Premier League title at a canter. Thierry Henry won the Golden Boot with 27 goals. And Steven Gerrard won the PFA Player of the Year award. Liverpool beat West Ham United in the FA Cup final on penalties courtesy of Gerrard's stunning volley. Juventus won Serie A, but then were stripped of the title and the one for the 2004-2005 season for their involvement in Calciopoli. 
Other teams that were sanctioned included AC Milan, Lazio, Fiorentina and Regina. So uh, let's come to you guys first in terms of where you were at, what you were up to during this World Cup. Jack, what are your kind of memories of the time? Oh, so uh, this is like, out of all the World Cups, this is the one I kind of remember fondest. And uh, so we have an article that went out on Monday um, by Ryan Baldy talking about the 1998 World Cup and Ronaldo. And the first line that like perfectly sums up where I am and how I remember this tournament is, he says like when you're like, the World Cup closest day when you're 10 years of age is the one you remember most fondly. And I was 11 at this time. I was finishing primary school. Um, my final year, going on the secondary school three months later and was just absolutely obsessed with football at this time. Just proper obsessed. And I think this, even like going through and creating the notes for this podcast and stuff, like everything that I was typing out, I was like, yeah, I remember all this like it was yesterday. So great times, great times. This World Cup was, uh, of course, hosted, Toby, in Germany. Is this one of the best host countries possible, I guess, because of the stadium, because of how easy it is to travel around, because of the fact it's a footballing nation? This was right up there, wasn't it? Absolutely. Um, It felt like a massive progression from what we'd seen four years previously. Tournament had been to Japan and South Korea, um, which caused a bit of controversy at the time. It was seen as a bit of a political decision rather than a footballing one um very similar to what we're seeing this year with qatar but germany as a tournament team are always incredible they they turn up um for the big occasion most of the time i know that's not always been the case and they've had a couple of really early exits perhaps but to have them hosting a tournament and for it to be the the 06 world cup which when you look back on the quality of the games actually i think it was just the perfect staging arena for them to be in um whether or not it's the absolute best there's ever been, I'm not sure, but it's definitely up there for sure. Jack, you're a kits man. Were there any particular kits that you rushed out to buy ahead of this one? There was, there was one that I remember trying to get. So I remember Argentina were absolutely brilliant in the group stages, which is Raquel May and Saviola, Messi just coming through. And um, I remember watching them in Spatter, Serbia, Montenegro, and like forced me dad to take me to JJB Sports the next day. I was like, I want to get the Argentina top. JJB nice Sports, top. what a throwback. Yeah, <laughs> um, so I was like, I need to go and get that top. So I went up, and everyone in Derry must have had the same idea. Must have all watched Argentina, were like, this team's amazing. I need their kit. So they, their kit wasn't there. So the only two kits that were left in JJB Sport were lately home top which I actually wasn't a big fan of. Looking back on it, it's actually quite a nice kit in comparison to kits now, but I wasn't a fan of it at the time. And the other one was the France away kit with like the tricolor in the middle of it. Uh, so I went for that one. So it had, And then sure enough, throughout the tournament, that was kind of their good luck kit. So it was because they changed that kit in like a third or fourth game and then won every game up the final. And then we know what happened after that. But that was my kit at the time. So it was. Those were the good old days. You just said JJB. You could get every shirt you wanted, pretty much, or it felt like you could, and they only cost like forty quid max. And as a yeah, okay, I wasn't so a kid then, but even children's kits were like largely affordable. Whereas now, replica shirts are what sixty-five, seventy is an absolute minimum, which scares a lot of people off from buying them. But way back when, that was the thing that I always wanted to spend my money on was football shirts and nothing else. Yeah, and I'm one of those people that's kept them, even though none of them fit me anymore. 
just to just to say I've got them. They're all in a in a pile at the bottom of the wardrobe. Um, in terms of pre-tournament expectations, we'll just take a quick look at what the uh, bookies were saying ahead of the competition. They had Brazil at five to two favourites. England was second favourites, joint second favourites with Germany at eight to one. Italy were at nineteen to two. France fourteen to one. Netherlands fourteen to one, and Spain sixteen to one. We all know what went on to happen in this World Cup. France at 14 to 1 was it was a cracking bet jack if if you were brave enough to jump on it from the beginning. Yeah, big time. Um I think a lot of that is down to 2002 and I don't think it'd be underestimated how bad a manager Raymond Dominic was as well. I think he was just absolutely completely out of his depth. And you can see like from the first like two games in their group stages they were really 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 dreadful. And after the third game Zidane uh, quoted as saying the team, the squad itself, just kind of took the reins a hundred percent of the team, and then that's what kind of turned it. So pre-tournament, like, look, it's it actually kind of makes sense if you like put yourself back to where the the nation was in two thousand and six, prior to that third game when Zidane and Co just kind of took the reins of the the team itself. Yeah, indeed. Um, England's expectations, Toby, were were quite big because. This was um, this was a really strong squad, at least on paper. Yeah, they had the likes of Wayne Rooney, Frank Lampard, Stephen Gerrard, Rhea Ferdinand, John Terry, all at the very top of their game. And they still had David Beckham. They had Michael Owen up front. It was a pool of players where you looked at that starting eleven, and you thought, wow, that's strong. Even in the fullback department, Gary Neville, having missed the, the O2 World Cup through injury, was back for this one. Ashley Cole was on the left-hand side. It was a strong starting eleven. Depth-wise, there wasn't a great deal, I would say, in terms of uh, defensive midfield. When you look back at the squad, Sven actually only picked seven defenders, which in the modern game sounds crazy, doesn't it? And he went for a boatload of midfielders that included, I think Stuart Downing was there, Aaron Lennon was there. Um, and Theo Walcott, don't forget, 17-year-old Theo Walcott went to this World Cup having not played a competitive game for Arsenal after moving to Southampton, which was... Um, a crazy decision at the time and even more crazy when he didn't feature in any of England's games, as you might expect. Let's jump into the group stage then. Let's let's jump ahead of, of Group A. We'll come back to that in a minute. We'll stick with you, Toby. England comfortably through as, as group winners in the end. Yeah, relatively easy group for England, to be honest. Paraguay and Trinidad and Tobago were never really going to challenge England, or they shouldn't have done at the very least. Um, England did make hard work of the games. That much you can say. They only scraped a 1-0 win against Paraguay in their opening game. And the goal was in the first few minutes. It was an own goal from a Beckham free kick. The performance was a bit laboured, um, a bit disjointed. But the second game against Trinidad, things stepped up a little bit more. Peter Crouch scored a good header. Steven Gerrard scored a, a banging uh, left foot effort from outside the box. And that kind of just meant that the game against Sweden was don't lose from England's point of view. And that was actually a really entertaining game. Two-all draw. Joe Cole scored that incredible volley from sort of 30 yards out. But you saw some of the fragility that England could display from set pieces. Um, and a bit of panic. Conceded a last-minute goal, a really scrappy last-minute goal. But on the whole, their progress in that group was, was pretty serene. Indeed it was. Uh, Jack, Group A, Germany went through as winners, host nation, You'd expect them to make light work of a group, including Ecuador, Poland and Costa Rica. But you put in the notes, classic tournament opener 
And it really was, wasn't it? From a, I remember that game like it was yesterday. Germany, Costa Rica. Talk us through sort of that group. Did it go as you expected it to? Yeah, so that Germany team had kind of built up over a couple of years. What happened in 2002 was quite strange for Germany because I don't think anyone in Germany expected them to do as well as they did. And then they did, and then they were able to build upon it in 2006. And yeah, like going back to that um, that group stage opener, I think it might be the best World Cup opening game maybe ever. And it really set the tone for the whole tournament with there were so many brilliant goals scored at this tournament. And we had two incredible ones in this game. The one uh, Lamb cutting in from the left and the Torsten Frings one. And I remember one of the debates with me and all my primary school friends at that time was um, we came on this goal on the Monday after the game was on a Friday and it was like, which goal did you think was better, Torsten Frings or Philip Lamb's goal? And I was I was a Torsten Frings man myself, so... <laughs> absolutely what a player a cracking player uh, let's go on to group c jack i'll stick with you because you mentioned that argentina really captured your imagination with their performances in the group stages of this competition and they went through with netherlands as you'd expect but this was a group that had the potential to produce a shock because ivory coast had a very good team going into this competition and serbia and montenegro are no mugs either yeah, this was probably, um, looking back, probably the group of death. Um, like, Ivory Coast had a lot of great players, you know, they dropped on Co. And Serbia Montenegro actually finished top of their qualifying group ahead of Spain going into this tournament. I think they only conceded like two or three goals throughout the whole of qualification. So they were they were no pushovers either. And the fact that um, Argentina will only grow onto this group and just run the table. And particularly against Serbia Montenegro, they scored six goals against them in one game. Whereas, like, in 10 other games leading up the tournament, Serbia conceded a couple of goals. And the manner in which they scored the goals, like, I think everyone remembers that Esteban Cambiasso goal. I think, honestly, I think, like, if that hadn't been scored later on in the tournament, in, like, a semi-final or final or whatever, it would be held in the same regard as the Carlos Alberto goal from 1970. So, it was just, they played such great football and they had so many players that you could really gravitate towards. Messi was so... Like it was so obvious how good Messi was going to be, even at this point, coming off the bench of Argentina and Raquel May at this time. And I'm, I'm sure you have fond memories, Harry, of Raquel May must have penalty for Villarreal against oh. Arsenal. <laughs> yeah, for sure, because everybody thought he was going to score it and put put Arsenal to bed essentially. So yeah, um, obviously that was a that was a huge moment. But yeah, great to see him uh, performing at the World Cup because he's one of those players that whether he plays against your team or not, whether he scores against your team or not, you you have to appreciate. Um, taking it on to Group D, uh, Portugal and Mexico went through uh, in that one. And this was another Portuguese golden generation, Toby. There's been a few over the years, but this was right up there as well. Yeah, they had a really strong core of players. And to be honest, they had one of the easier groups on paper, Angola, Iran weren't much of a footballing force back then. It's a different story at this 2022 World Cup. You actually fancy them to do something in England's group. But Portugal had a strong team, good goalkeeper in Ricardo. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo was just kind of announcing himself as a world-leading player. Um, and they still had Luis Figo with the armbands around his arm and the likes of Pauletta up front. So they had good depth. Um, and they showed it in the group stage by winning all three games pretty comfortably. Indeed. Uh, group E, Jack, saw Italy uh, top the group 
And um, Italy seemed to be either amazing in World Cups or, or completely dreadful and woeful. But in this group stage, you got the impression uh, that they were going to be a real force to be reckoned with. Because, again, another tricky group on paper. Yeah, um, when you look at that USA team, was quite good. And particularly Czech Republic. I think Czech Republic, out of any of the teams in the tournament, were probably the biggest underachievers. It's really, really weird. Do you remember that like Czech Republic were number two in the FIFA World Rankings leading up to this tournament? They had Neved, Rizicki, Bagan Collar up front, all eight foot ten of them. And you know and it was it like that game in particular, the one where eight at least beat Costa Rica uh sorry, uh at least beat Czech Republic and Cannavaro was leaping essentially over Jan Collar. They won headers and all you seen I think that typified the determination from the Italian team at this time, post-Calciopoli, they all come together and actually give Italian football fans something to cheer about. And, you know, and also, like, it's it's easy to forget just how great this squad was. And, uh, like, this, there's been so many great Italy teams over the years, but in terms of, like, an Italian golden generation, if you're going to pinpoint one, I think this one was probably the best overall squad, point for point, that Italy maybe ever had. Yeah, just absolutely. Going the, um, just going back to the Czech Republic, it was all the more surprising because they blitzed the US in their opening group game. They won 3 0 and they won that game convincingly. Um, and Ghana had lost to Italy on the opening day. So you felt like the Czech Republic were strong favourites, particularly with their ranking, as Jack's alluded to there, going into that game against Ghana. But they didn't really show up in that game. And then the pressure was on them to try and get something against a good Italy side. And Ultimately, they didn't, and then Ghana managed to beat the US in their final group game to um, to claim second in the group. Indeed, and yeah, you're right about that Czech Republic side, guys. Top team with a lot of uh, stars in there. Milan Baros was in there as well, if I remember correctly. Mm. Another one of those names from the past. Uh, but Daniele De Rossi, Jack, got himself in hot water uh, with a headbutt in the game against USA, and it saw him ruled out for four matches. That was a big blow for the Italians, one that they managed to overcome largely. But, I mean, how how silly was that? Oh, it was just... He was so young at this time and uh, didn't have the experience. And he was a bit of a hothead when he came in at Roma and Italy. And it's something that I think he massively regrets um, because he's never he never got back to that position again with an Italian team. Like, he was... Uh, well gone by the time Italy won Euro 2020 and Italy generally underachieved in every tournament after this one. Um, so I think, yeah, great. He has the winner's medal, but I think there's probably some uh, regrets there and his ancillary is from what, the way he acted. Yeah, indeed. No question about that. Uh, let's go on to Group F. Uh, Brazil, the favourites, uh, won the group with uh, with relative ease, three wins out of three. But the big talking point from this group, um, Toby, was, again, an English referee. Surprise, surprise. Graham Pohl gave Brett Emerton of Australia three yellow cards in one game. Yeah, it was. That is, it's up there, isn't it, in terms of World Cup calamity moments. Um, Brazil actually blitzed that group, didn't they? That This was before Croatia were really a footballing force. Um, it was kind of touch and go between them and Australia to get out of the group. And ultimately, Australia managed to grab second. But... Yeah, Graham Paul stole the limelight for uh, for carding Brett Emerson three times. Um, and it was even pointed out to him on the pitch, wasn't it, by the players to say that you've made a horrendous mistake. Um, but we know English referees know the laws better than anybody else and how to implement them. So 
three yellows was how it stayed. Um, but as for Brazil in the group, they just blitzed it, didn't they? They cruised through um, and they didn't really need to be at their brilliant best to do so. It was interesting as well, because in, in the World Cup prior, we saw Japan and South Korea do quite well in their own sort of environment, in their own surroundings. But Japan finished bottom of this group. And we'll go on to Group G, where South Korea also failed to qualify, finishing in third. Um, so it was interesting to see that kind of drop off. I know four years is a long time in football, but just to see that drop off of those two sides in comparison to what they were able to achieve uh, sort of on their own turf. Uh, but Group G, Jack, saw Switzerland win it, perhaps to a lot of people's surprise. And France were really shaky in this group. They got through in the end, but it was by no means uh, a group stage performance that gave anybody any sort of confidence that they could go as far as they ended up going. Yeah, they were point blank. First two games, they were absolutely dreadful. Like really, really, really bad. Looked like the uh, France team that came under the group stages in 2002 had played the same way. Um, you know, the play, the teams that they were playing against, I think they were quite lucky um, to be in such a weak group. If there had been one other team that was like in any way good, and no offense to uh, Togo and South Korea, but if you stick like a Ghana or something in that group, France probably don't get through. And they did end up relying on a on a win on the final day over Togo to get through, which is it's hard to believe when you see this group and them and finishing behind Switzerland and really struggling to score goals. Um, the fact that they really get the final after it and turn it around, it shows how it doesn't really matter what way you get through the group stages as long as you get through and then just hit and form at the right time in a tournament so it really matters and that's what France ended up doing. Yeah, indeed. Uh, they did. Went through a second uh, place behind Switzerland. Group H saw Spain uh, top the pile. They won all three games scoring eight goals and conceding one. Uh, Toby, they set the tone, didn't they, in that group stage by being incredibly efficient, incredibly strong. But also they were starting to bring through a different kind of player as well. Yeah, this was kind of the building blocks for the success that we saw for Spain in future tournaments, uh, Euro 2008, World Cup 2010, etc. Um, they had the likes of Xavi and Fabregas patrolling midfield. Xavi Alonso was at his best. That's when he was at his peak for Liverpool and they had um, Sergio Ramos and Carlos Puyol in the centre of defence, arguably two of the, the best central defenders in the world at that time. And Tunisia and Saudi Arabia were never really going to give them much of a game, but Spain historically had not faulted in major tournaments, but they didn't cope with pressure too well. Um, and they certainly didn't ease to victories as, as much as they did in this game. And in, actually Ukraine were the team that Spain battered. They beat them 4-0. Um, and that allowed them to kind of be in cruise control against Tunisia and Saudi Arabia. And it was it was a very impressive group stage performance from them. Indeed. Let's take it on then to the round of 16. Uh, Germany with a routine victory, you would say, over Sweden. Lukas Podolski uh, standing out, scoring a couple of goals. A player whose career, Jack, didn't quite go in the way that it might have done at certain points. There were times you looked at him, he ended up coming to Arsenal a bit later on. There were times that you looked at him and you went, this guy is a lethal elite finisher. But the truth is he didn't offer an awful lot else outside of that. Yeah, really weird one. I, I do remember him coming through at this time, and I think this was the summer he moved from Cologne, his boyhood club, to Bayern. And there was a lot, a lot of hype around him going into this tournament. And it, the one thing that always really stands out to me is um, 
like he was such a clean striker of the ball, and you think that that alone for a forward like he could go for like twenty. 25 years be playing at 30 years old and yeah he can't run anymore but if you give him a ball around 18 yard box he's such a clean striker of the ball that he will always be good but it just doesn't really work out that way so it didn't he was like a really clean striker of the ball but wasn't a natural finisher in any way um so he's just one of those guys i'd love to hear what you think about him harry as well because i know you've you've seen a lot of him down the years for arsenal and one of those guys that look good at times but not so good at all times for you guys exactly that a player that you know has it in him, a player that you knew could deliver, scored some absolutely stunning goals for Arsenal, but not a player that you could really rely on in the build-up too much. And I think in a not very strong Arsenal team, he became a little bit of a passenger and we just couldn't have that at that time. You know, maybe now, maybe in a different time, it might have worked a little bit better, but still very much a fan favourite, despite his time at the club not being very uh, long. Uh, Argentina, uh, beat Mexico after extra time. A stunning goal from Maxi Rodriguez. Toby, one of the goals of the tournament? Absolutely. This was the tournament for incredible goals, wasn't it? Um, it was on Maxi Rodriguez's weak foot as well. Stunning chest control, the pressure of being in extra time, the fact that they're playing Mexico. So you kind of had that Central America, South America rivalry, um, place in the quarterfinals at the stake. And it was an absolute rocket that just kind of dipped under the crossbar last minute as well. It was unstoppable um, and kind of elevated him to the international stage as well because everybody knew about Maxi Rodriguez, but perhaps didn't know or he wasn't known to a worldwide audience. He certainly was after that goal. Sticking with you, Toby, England got through against Ecuador, not the greatest game but obviously uh, one of England's key players at the time, making a, a really significant contribution. Yeah, as Jack said, it's just doing enough to get to the next round or being able to beat the opposition that's put in front of you. And I think from England's point of view, they were just hoping that they were going to step up their game, game by game, um, and raise their level. The group stage had offered some promising signs, but Ecuador um, showed in a round of 16 there were no pushovers. And actually it was a, a David Beckham free kick that decided the game arguably one that the keeper may feel he should have done a bit better with um it was quite wide on the angle and Beckham was a good 26 28 yards out but um it was enough to get England through but at the same time you were kind of thinking as a fan is there more to come from this team there should be given the quality of player that Sven had at his disposal but given that it was the first knockout game I think you were kind of hoping that you would see a bit more room for a bit more drive from England. And it was it was missing from that performance. Yeah, there's no question about that. Uh, moving on to the game dubbed as the Battle of Nuremberg, uh, Jack, a game between Portugal and Netherlands, which was a, a bad tempered affair. Should we put it that way? <laughs> yeah, I think that's putting it lightly. Most bookings in a single World Cup game ever. I think it was. Four egg yards and 16 yellow yards in one game. Uh, yeah, they, this is one of those games where um, I kind of vaguely remember watching it. Um, I remember, um, I think the standout memory for me is um, Van Bommel and Deco just sitting beside each other on the uh, in the stands, just like almost just laughing together, just being like this was, we just had a really good time, just kicking lumps out of each other. There was It was such a, it, it was bad temper, but there was something like, I don't know. There was something quite enjoyable about it and something quite joyous about them just kicking each other for a while. It was just a very different game from the rest of the tournament. And it's one of those games where 
it's not the first game I would think of in terms of great games for this tournament, but it, it shows that this kind of tournament just had a bit of everything, really. It had your classic games, it had your great goals, and then it also just had Van Bommel just kicking lumps out of people for 90 <laughs> minutes as well, which, you know, it's something for everybody there. Yeah, for sure. That's It's certainly one of the games that sticks in my mind when I think of this tournament, because as you said, not the greatest in terms of football, but certainly an entertaining match. Uh, that, of course, Portugal won 1-0 in the end. Um, Italy versus Australia. Jack, I'll stick with you again. Grosso, did he dive to win that 95th minute penalty that ultimately saw Italy through a lot of controversy around this? I think he did dive, to be honest. I think it's one that um, you would get a six-minute VAR look at nowadays and it would ultimately be given as a booking for Grosso. But, you know, it's one of those ones by hook or by crook. They made it through. Um, and apologies to any Australians listening, but for the good of the tournament, <laughs> you would rather have Italy going through than Australia. So, you know, needs must, needs must. And it was nice. It was nice for Toddy to score a goal like this because, like, um, one of those guys got injured a few months before the tournament, was kind of, people were unsure if he was going to make the tournament or not. And he came in. And he was kind of rotating between uh, Del Piero and Toddy at this time. And this is when Toddy kind of cemented his place in the starting 11, which shows how great this Italy team was. It's like you have your up in the air between Del Piero and Toddy, like two of the best players the country's ever produced and two of the best players of the last 30 years overall. So it just shows how great this team was. And it, it was great for Toddy to get this moment when I think this was these like two-year period when he was working under... Spalletti and playing as a false nine and things for Roma. This was the absolute best hottie we've ever seen. So it's great that he could cap off this time with a four cup winners medal and a penalty against Australia. Oh, yes. Uh, Switzerland, Ukraine, quite possibly the worst game of football ever played at a World Cup final. So we'll gloss over that. Uh, but Brazil, Toby, beat Ghana uh, comfortably by three goals to nil, but a significant day for Ronaldo, R9. Yeah, he became the all time leading goal scorer in World Cup history, and it was a trademark Ronaldo goal. Time just run perfectly from deep. Ghana playing a ridiculously high line, knowing that that was kind of Ronaldo's game, was to to try and nip in behind. And even though Ronaldo was past his peak by then, he hadn't lost his finishing ability and he hadn't lost the ability to do that glorious step over that he used to do before shifting the ball to the left um, with his weak foot. And that's how he um, that's how he scored it for Brazil with consummate ease, and then they they kind of eased through the rest of that game um, to set up their quarterfinal um, against the game we're about to talk about: Spain versus France. Jack, the game in which, as Zidane put it, the French squad took the keys off of Raymond Dominic. You talked earlier about what a poor manager he was. This was almost a, a revolt happening on the pitch. Uh, from the French players who had more power, had more clout than Raymond Dominic at the end of the day. Yeah, I think these France players just seen it as their last chance, especially Zidane retiring after the tournament. It was like, I'm not letting Raymond Dominic ruin my last chance for glory at a World Cup, essentially. And him and Henri and Vieira and Turam and co really, really stepped up and this was the first game. Um I remember actually not being able to watch this game live when it happened. It was actually my school leaving do that night so it was so I remember being in the canteen after it and getting the buffet and everyone being like oh France beat Spain 3-1 that was such a shock because France were so bad up to this game and 
was like, oh, Zidane had a great game. So I remember going home and watching the highlights after um, on BBC One after the news and being like, Zidane did have a great game. I think this is a game as well where Frank Ribery really, really showed how good a player he was going to be in the in the years afterwards. It was, very, yeah. it was very characteristic of Spain at this time as well, wasn't it? They weren't at their level and they came up against a team who raised their level. And that so often happens to Spain in either round of 16, round of 16 games, sorry, or quarterfinals for kind of the previous decade. Um, and again, it proved to be the case here. And as you say, Jack, that was kind of the birth of Frank Ribéry as being a, hey, this boy's going to be a star. Indeed. Um, France, of course, went through uh, three goals to one winners over Spain and we take it on to the quarterfinals where Germany took on Australia, almost said Australia, Argentina. Uh, Jack, this was the definition of a World Cup heavyweight clash. Yeah, two brilliant teams. They're two really, really, really brilliant teams. And um, I think this, the Germany team perhaps had a few more holes in it than the Argentina team did. But what that Germany team had was the fact that they're Germany above anything else. They're winners. The team, a lot of players used to winning, grew up winning, Bastian Schweinsteiger and co. And yeah, they just dug in and they capitalized on a pretty bad managerial mistake from Lobos Michel bringing off Raquelme when they were one up, ended up conceding after that, weren't able to score again, went to penalties, and then you're missing your absolute first choice penalty ticker, which, um, Harry, you might think, God, I wouldn't want him taking a crucial penalty, but <laughs> he was he was still Argentina's man for it. Germany, obviously synonymous with penalty victories, um, and, and that was how they got through in this one. Uh, Toby, it was much easier for Italy, who took on Ukraine. Um, Luca Toni, a name of the past that really kind of jumped out at me when, when reading through the notes ahead of this show, but he was uh, very impactful in, uh, in this competition and in Serie A in the season prior. Yeah, he bagged a brace in this particular game and he'd scored, I think it was over 30 goals for Fiorentina during the league season. So he was a hot property for Italy and that they came up against a Ukraine team who set their stall out quite early to try and contain Italy and defend. And they went a goal down after about six, seven minutes and that kind of threw that plan out of the window. And I think Ukraine hit the woodwork twice during that game from memory, but Italy were well worth their win. And as you say, Luca Toni was kind of um, showing himself to be what we thought at the time, an elite level striker. It never really continued that way for him. He didn't absolutely flourish at the very top of the game, but he was more than good enough for Ukraine on that particular day. Indeed. Uh, England were left heartbroken by Portugal, Toby, for the second consecutive tournament. This was... This was just so England, wasn't it? To to have a player sent off, to have to, um, you know, sit and dissect why exactly the, the golden generation failed to click again. It was something that was starting to become quite familiar. Yeah, and it was all the more frustrating that it it felt like Portugal were there for the taking in a way, even though they had a strong team themselves. England, had they got beyond the quarterfinal, you just felt like the momentum might be behind them. But as we all know, Cristiano Ronaldo lured Wayne Rooney into uh, that stupid stamp. Um, He was sent off and it was more ill-discipline from England that we'd seen eight years previously. David Beckham doing the same thing against Argentina. It was the pressure um, 
ultimately that got to England on the day. And look, penalties have never been England's strongest suit. Um, but to lose 3-1 in a shootout, I think was particularly disappointing um, because, again, that just showed a lack of composure and a lack of ability to handle um, absolute pressure moments. What did you make of the wink, Toby? Did that bother you? Was that Absolutely. That- I, I remember there was like a, a cutout of Rooney holding Ronaldo's head that had been severed from his body and there was like sinewy bits <laughs> from his neck and that was kind of a, before the generation of memes, that was a, a picture that was widely shared on the internet. You could probably find it if you Google it. Um, but he became public enemy number one Ronaldo in this country for, for many months. I remember the first day of the Premier League season, he was roundly booed um, and I think that carried on for at least a couple of months after that. But yeah, I wasn't too amused with it. I was I was less impressed with Wayne Rooney losing his call. But I then had to remember that he was only, what, 21 years of age at that time during the tournament. So relatively young head on what was very broad shoulders. And he had a lot of expectation and um, pressure on him to deliver, particularly after Michael Owen's knee had buckled in the group stages. It was very much the onus on Rooney to deliver. Um, He couldn't do it, but yeah, he was lured into it by Ronaldo, who who just knew how to play the game. Jack, what did you make of the wink? I've got to be honest, it was one of those housery moments that if it went against me, I'd be absolutely livid, but when you're a bit detached from the situation, you can actually quite enjoy it. I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was very funny. And I, I thought it was very funny because... You know, you've seen um, like England players and managers and things being scapegoated so much by the press over the years. Like you think of um, Beckham, for example, in 1988 and things like that. They're always looking for someone to blame. And at that time, I remember it quite clearly being a red card and quite clearly being Rooney just losing his head. And he was kind of not really slagged off in any way for for doing that it was because of the wink from Ronaldo it was like it was almost like the press were kind of saying really did not have him wrong it was Ronaldo's wink that got him sent off when that just wasn't the case and also for me like I'm I'm from Ireland I support Ireland so um you know I always revel in, in England going out of a tournament especially when there's that level of expectation and I think um, when England went out in 2006, the expectation was probably the highest of my lifetime. So it was kind of all the more sweet. Sorry, but sorry, Toby. That's that's fine. The, the same thing applied to um, Diego Simeone, didn't it? In 98, it was all on David Beckham, but Diego Simeone was public enemy number one um, because he was the other player involved. It, it was a red card and I completely agree as a neutral. And if that's gone in favour of my team, I'd absolutely love it. But when you're engrossed and you're kind of soaked in that international fever and you're desperate for your country to do well um yeah it was poorly received wasn't it yeah for sure uh let's take it on to the final quarterfinal brazil versus france we talked about germany argentina being a heavyweight clash well this was certainly one too uh jack you've put it in the notes the zidane game share your memories of this one with us i have such a vivid memory of watching this game i was getting my hair cut uh, my dad's a barber, so I used to get my hair cut in the kitchen, and we had a portable TV in the kitchen. And I was like, "Right, if you're cutting my hair, go and put the t- put the seat so that I can watch the game." So I was getting my hair cut watching Sudan play this game, and it there 
it's an interesting one because it just felt like more than just watching a really great game of football. It was like at some point, like someone's so good and it's so, you know, you're going to remember a moment and someone being that good for so long that it kind of almost starts becoming like a life experience rather than just watching a game of football. And I think everyone who watched this game and watched Zidane in this form uh, all remember this game and can <laughs> recite basically everybody skill he did at that time. And, um, it was kind of it was one of those ones where some other French players in these games didn't really step up that much. So he didn't. I know, like for Henri, for example, he was incredible that season. Like he wasn't in top top form at this time. So it was games like this where it was pretty much just Sudan dragging um, the, his nation through against at that time the favorites, the best team in the tournament. So. Yeah, definitely one I remember very fondly and one that um, always pops up on Twitter with the highlights uh, once every week probably, so it does, it ends up in the timeline. I was just going to say, there are there's so many videos of just highlight reels of Zidane's touches, his flicks, his turns that he did just in that one game. I think it's four or five minutes worth. Um, but as you say, Jack, it was kind of like a, it felt like a one-man band during that game. Everything that France did went through Zidane. Um and I think that's where the appreciation for... Because weirdly, there were some people who didn't rate Zinedine Zidane and didn't think that he was an elite-level footballer. I'll challenge anybody to go back and watch that game and say that Zidane wasn't by far and away the best player on the park. And you have to think about the other players who are playing in that game, not just for France, but also for Brazil. It was a team full of stars. But Zidane was just... He was on another planet. He was indeed. At semi-final time, Italy uh, beat Germany after extra time. One of the classic World Cup games. Um, this was when I think, Jack, that Fabio Cannavaro announced himself as one of the greatest centre-backs of all time. Yeah, this game won him, the Ballon d'Or. It was this game. He was just unbelievable. Just had had a different level. And it's it's really it's a really interesting one with Cannavaro was because when you look back at the... Italian defenders the last 30 years and so I always thought Nesta was a better defender and I think everyone would agree that Maldini was the best out of that bunch but I don't think any other Italian defender from that generation had a game quite as good as Cannavaro did in this in this instant and in this moment and when it really 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 mattered the most he was amazing and I also like uh, I give a lot of credit to um, Buffon as well for how good he was at this tournament because he only conceded two goals in the whole tournament. One was a Zidane penalty, which no one in the world will ever say. And the other was a freak Zaccardo own goal against the USA. And he, he made a few really, really good saves in this game as well. So it's one of those ones where it was very much like a classic Italian thing of the defence was amazing. The bedrock was there and you were relying on these one or two really, really great creative players to um, get you through. And those creative players were Pirlo for the Grosso goal, which was an amazing pass and amazing finish. And then it was Del Piero who came off the bench and scored the last, with the last kick of the game as well. Toby, one of the things that sticks out in my mind from this game was Grosso's not only goal, but the celebration. It's one of the iconic moments of this World Cup. Yeah, look, just touching on the goal very quickly as well. Andrea Pirlo's pass into Grosso. It was a no-look pass. That's how good Pirlo was in the pressure of a World Cup um, semi-final to be able to do that. 
And as Jack said, Grosso's finished, started outside the post, bent into the corner, rippled the side netting, and then, yeah, all hell kind of broke loose. Gianluigi Buffon sprinting out of his goal, kind of a melee of bodies, all piling on top of Grosso. Um, the crowd's not going quite so wild because obviously hopes for uh, for Germany were very high. But it was an incredible game, an incredible occasion. I also, Jack, felt at the time that Nesta, if you were going to compare Nesta and Cannavaro, I would have said prior to that game that Nesta was the far superior defender. I always rated Cannavaro, but Nesta was the one. But in terms of a single performance in a particular game on an occasion of that significance and that scale, Cannavaro was absolutely incredible. Indeed, he was. Uh, the other semi-final saw uh, France take on Portugal. And again, Jack, Zinedine Zidane was the difference. Always going to be. Always going to be. It just felt like throughout this tournament from the Spain game onwards, it just felt like it was just completely his tournament. He had taken it by a scuffle of the neck. And throughout the years, um, I know we've done 2002, and we talked about prior to it in European competitions. He scored that volley against Bayer Leverkusen. 1998 World Cup one, the final, scored two headers. He just is a man for these big, big, big moments. And, you know, I, I get um, the critique of he wasn't as consistent as some other players and stuff. Like, oh, he doesn't score a hat-trick against Getafe in 2007 or whatever, something like that. But it's these moments are the ones that matter. And these moments are the ones that people actually remember. And in these moments... There's maybe never been a better player than Zidane. He always was able to step up to the big occasion and and be the best player on the pitch. And to be honest, I remember this game being a pretty dreadful game. Um, I remember the penalty going in, and I remember there was a free kick late on. And and I know everyone remembers Bartes for being, you know, <laughs> one of those goalkeepers. He had a mistake on him. We'll put it that way. I'm sure Toby fondly remembers the Decanio one where he had his hand up until Decanio got the six-yard box. For appealing, appealing for about five seconds, yeah, when he could have gone to close down the angle. <laughs> <laughs> Just classic Bartes. And you kind of knew at some point he would do something stupid during this tournament. And it was in this game where free kicks straight on his midriff and he just like threw it up into the air right in front of himself and just about got away with it. I think Turam ran and it just about cleared the ball. But that was kind of a hot heart stopper for France and they were able to hold on to after that and get to the final. Portugal were really disappointing in that game, weren't they? Considering it was a, a World Cup semi-final, they didn't really attack France with any drive or impetus at all. And the game kind of passed them by in a way. And as you said, Jack Zidane kind of stood out as the, the player who always rose to the big occasion. It's maybe a game where you'd have looked at Luis Figo and wanted more from him, but... Ultimately, France were too good on the day. Um, and Zidane, as you said, had a proven track record of doing this when it really mattered. He did indeed. Uh, let's go on to the final. The scene was set, France versus Italy. And of course, uh, we all know what went on to happen. But I guess the biggest talking point uh, is is the Zidane incident, right? We've got to talk about this uh, first and foremost, Jack. I mean, a moment of madness from Zinedine Zidane. Him and Matarazzi were at it throughout the entirety of the game. Uh, Matarazzi was that type of player, wasn't he? Somebody that would look to get under your skin and was quite happy to engage in the psychological warfare uh, in these types of fixtures. But Zidane 
completely lost his head and and probably tarnished what was a really good tournament for him. Yeah, like when I was talking earlier about Cannavaro and the Ballon d'Or because of that um, performance against Germany. And our reason why I won the Ballon d'Or was because Zidane did what he did in this final. You know, if Zidane had a went on and won the World Cup with France, I don't think there would have been any questions about who was won the Ballon d'Or this year. And it's it was actually like the second time that he had headbutted someone and missed out in the Ballon d'Or because he did something similar. I think it was two thousand when Figo won it, and Zidane was after Euro two thousand. It was very clear Zidane was the best player in the world at that time, and Figo was amazing. Don't get me wrong, but. Zidane at that tournament and in a tournament year, Zidane just goes to a different level and he was in that sort of form again in 2006 and again it was ahead. But I think he was playing a Champions League game for Juventus. Um, I think it might have been against Bordeaux or I think it might have been against the French team. Don't quote me on that. I can't quite remember but he had but a summer at that time and it was just something that weirdly Zidane had in his game and I think in a way... It, it's kind of what made Sedan great in a two in a midfield is he had that kind of tenacity and he would go on for these big tackles and be really, really aggressive. And every once in a while, that would kind of boil over a wee bit too much. And unfortunately, one of the times it happened was the World Cup final and his last game ever. Indeed, it was. Uh, Toby, your thoughts on, on that final? You know, it did go all the way. It went to penalty kicks. But... Again, you know, just just a game that was, I think, overshadowed by silly incidents when actually it was a quite an interesting game. Yeah, there's quite a lot of niggle in the game. Um, Zidane was actually the standout kind of act during that game, even prior to the red cards, because let's not forget, he dinked a Penenka penalty off the underside of the crossbar in a World Cup final, which just about crossed the line um, to give France the lead. And he also had another free header um, during the second half, which he bulleted straight at Gianluigi Buffon, who showed his great reactionary instincts to tip it over the bar. But he was kind of the driving force for France again in that game. Um, ultimately lost his head, as Jack's just spoken about there. Um, and it wasn't the first time that those two had kind of come to blows. There'd been a lot of niggle and chat between them so there was something bubbling under the surface you could actually see it the way the game was playing out that there was some needle between them um quite weird to hear Zidane afterwards say that he's not proud of what he did um but it's part of his past and that he can't do anything to change it um but look world cup finals are always going to be spicy occasions because of what it means and I think if we hadn't seen that occasion, the final might not be remembered as as fondly as it is. I look back on that final and think it was a great game. And part of that was the fact that there was the headbutt, was the fact that there was a bit of niggle between both sides. Um, kind of adds to the occasion. does indeed. And just to finish up, Jack, the significance of Italy winning the World Cup off the back of what we talked about earlier, Calciopoli, it was massive, wasn't it? Because it just reminded people that Although not all is well in the Italian game, as a nation, they're still a very powerful force in football. And and this went a long way in kind of, I guess, pushing that talk to one side. I think the country really needed it. Yeah, it did. It did. This kind of, looking back on it now, how many years we are removed from it, um, it kind of feels like this 
game and Italy won in this World Cup was kind of the real definitive end of a real great generation of football. And I think it's the generation that we all grew up with in some capacity, how the glory years of Italian football from way through the 90s up until about 2006 when Calciopoli happened and the Premier League money came in. And it just felt like this was kind of the perfect way to cap off um, all these players' careers. Um, give them, it's like players like Totti, who had stayed with Roma for 20, 25 years, had only won one Serie A title. He had went elsewhere, he would have won a lot more and things like that. But, you know, all the other trophies don't really matter. The one that really, really matters is the World Cup. And it was great to give players that come that kind of crowning achievement and cap off what um, for many of us, and uh, I'm speaking for myself, I'll probably speak for you guys as well, like these golden generations of players, Zidane finishing at this time, Lillian Turam winding down, Toddy, Del Piero, you had Figo at his prime, all these great players we'd all watched for like the 10 years prior. And it felt like so many different golden generations had come into this tournament. And it felt quite fitting that the golden generation that won it was the Italian golden generation, which in many ways was the one that we all grew up watching throughout the years and had the most affection for. Toby, when it comes to World Cup, sometimes we talk about them being underwhelming. Sometimes we talk about them being a little bit dull, not living up to the huge expectation that always seems to be around them. How does this World Cup rank for you? Would you say it was a good World Cup, a bad World Cup? I loved it. I loved it, Harry. I don't think you really need to say any say any more than that. Um, 2002 was one that I did not enjoy. And Jack referenced at the very start of the podcast that World Cups when you're a kid generally are the ones that you enjoy the most, but actually 2002 wasn't the case. This one um, was kind of the end of an era in a way. Um, Jack's referenced it there with players coming towards the end of their career. I just think the overall standard um, was pretty high. Okay, the group stages were not entirely close and the big teams cruised through their groups, but as a spectacle um, and as a tournament, I think it's just kind of the, the stories that were told throughout that competition um, is what made it such an enjoyable tournament to watch as a fan and as a spectator. Um, so for me, it's up there. Um, I know that historians will look back on 1970, 74, 86, 82, 90. There's so many great World Cups, but they've all sadly become or come before my era. So 06 is up there in terms of uh, World Cups for me. Brilliant. Jack, how about you? How'd you rate it? Um, I would I would say it's um, the best World Cup of my lifetime. And I know I was the exact right age to think that. Like like I said earlier, I was 11. I can remember this World Cup like it was yesterday. It's just the one that's kind of always come to mind every time any World Cup rolls around. But yeah, just I remember it so fondly. And um, I remember going into the 2010 World Cup after that and the 2010 World Cup being you know, not the greatest World Cup in the world, we'll put it that way. And that, and seeing other World Cups not being as good as the twenty, uh, the 2006 World Cup has kind of enhanced that thought for me of, yeah, this was the best World Cup of my lifetime. And, you know, hopefully we'll get an R one as good in the coming years. 
indeed guys thank you so so much uh, for joining me to look back at the 2006 world cup make sure you're subscribed to the 90 min podcast feed because there is plenty more coming your way uh, we've still got a fair few world cups to review ahead of the kickoff of the 2022 competition thank you all so much uh, thanks to jack thanks to toby we'll be back soon until then take care Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.